Well, brothers and sisters, good afternoon from where I'm standing, but good morning to you, since you'll probably be listening to this sometime tomorrow morning uh, if we don't meet for worship. It's uh, currently sleeting outside, and oh, it's possibly three straight weeks that we won't be able to meet together for worship, and uh, that's, that's a lament in itself. Um, but here we are um, to look at God's word, and we're looking at Psalm 44 today, which is a communal lamentation. And so appropriate, again, how we looked at last week, Psalms 42 and 43 together, how it was a, a personal lament. We continue on the lament theme during these times when uh, either we can't be together at all or we can't be together, all of us, because of the pandemic and the lockdown and the social distancing and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> Let me read to us Psalm 44. This is God's word, and we'll begin. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have continually, we boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have before us here your word, and we need to know what it, uh, 
taught the ancient Israelites, our forefathers in the faith, during the time when it was first written and they took it upon their lips to sing. But we also need to know how it um, similarly uh, impacts your people today, the church. So Lord, speak through me and open the ears of my listeners, Father. Uh, something I can't do, and that's why we ask you to do it, we pray. That you would help us, Lord, to, to love you more and to uh, see your will for, for us and for us to be taught uh, by your word this, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard a preacher deliver a doctrinally sound sermon on a potentially explosive Bible passage that nevertheless left you dissatisfied because he played it too safe? Maybe he assumed everyone shared his background assumptions and therefore he was preaching to the choir, if you know what I mean. But what you really wanted to hear about were all those assumptions that happened to be loaded with dynamite. Once at another church, I heard a sermon on the book of Jonah, and the main point was God always gives you another chance to start over. It sounded all right at first, but since Jonah is about God giving Nineveh one more chance to repent, even though their society was, was guilty of so much violence and idolatry, I still heard the preacher preach this way, repent, and Nineveh did, and God forgave them. And you should repent too, because God loves you and wants to forgive you. And the plane has touched down, safe landing. Good job. That's the polite, sanitized version of Jonah. But with my Bible on my lap, I got bored and restless listening to another safe sermon. So I started turning the pages. One, two, three, four. Just four pages later, I got to the book of Nahum, which is the next chapter in Nineveh's story, when a century later, the city had fallen back into their sins, and this time, God didn't give them one more chance. This time, he completely wiped them out. That morning, I read Nahum's three chapters right then and there, while the preacher plodded along in gospel cruise control. And what I read rekindled in me the fear of the Lord. God's dynamite changed me. Same with Psalm 44. A preacher could preach this passage safe because a surface reading is pretty straightforward. And if I did that, I'd be safe. But you'd probably be bored and frustrated that I didn't handle its dynamite assumptions. So brothers and sisters, <laughs> let's not be safe by ignoring the spiritual explosives here. Life is too short, and eternity hangs in the balance. So rather than treating Psalm 44 like a harmless candle, let's see it for what it is, a giant cultural bomb with lit fuse that nothing else but the beautiful, scandalous gospel can save us from. Here are the questions the people of God ask in this psalm. Can't you see we are defeated and dejected? And you are our God. So you know we have not forsaken you or broken your covenant. Why then are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? As we'll see, there are explosives packed into the assumptions. So we're not going to ignore them. We're going to handle them with care. And what we're going to discover 
is that on the basis of God's past covenant faithfulness to his people, when the church laments her innocent suffering, she can have every confidence that God will respond favorably to loyal yet desperate prayers for redemption. So let us boldly live according to the gospel of our justification by faith alone in Christ. I want to give us a little bit of a background here, somewhat like last week, because we need to understand a few things about Psalm 44 and the way that the Psalter is organized before we can situate ourselves into what's going on in Psalm 44. Last week, we looked at 42 and 43 together. And this week, 44, those three Psalms, two in a sense, because 42 and 43 go together, have a number of thematic connections that link them as the introductory Psalms in book two of the Psalter. Thus, both 42 and 43 and 44 may be read together. You see, Psalm 44 is a corporate articulation of the individual lament expressing the problems that we saw in 42-43. Both of these share these connections. They talk about profound confusion as God rejecting and forgetting his covenant people who are experiencing oppression from the enemy. If you have the sermon handout, you can see the the verses uh, that are listed there. Because Psalm 44 also, as the one last week, is a mascal, which we saw is a teaching song, we need to read it in its larger context, recognizing the psalm's placement in the whole story of the Bible. O. Palmer Robertson, a pastor scholar in our Reformed Presbyterian tradition, says this, quote, These introductory psalms express hope in the context of an ongoing struggle to establish Messiah's kingdom of righteousness and peace in response to the opposition of other nations as well as deeply personal struggles. End quote. Yes, Psalm 44 gives us more words to sing than 42 and 43. But for both psalms, there is no obvious answer to the confusion of why God seems to have abandoned his innocent people. At least momentarily, it seems Israel as a nation is caught up in the dramatic struggle of the kings of the earth taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed. So that is where we will begin in Psalm 44, with point one, a communal tragedy. As a communal lament, this psalm begins, as you would expect, with a testimony of God's past faithfulness to his people. The idea is to establish up front that God has been good to Israel, and they have experienced God's favor in military victory over their enemies. Not because Israel's strong, or because they were so confident in their own courage, but because God fought for them. And they express thanks and trust to God in delightful worship. So far, so good, right? Mm, Safe landing. Except, pause for a moment and read between the lines. There is cultural dynamite here. You may have squirmed a little when it dawned on you that we're talking about the Canaanite conquest. Verse one, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. What are those deeds God performed? Driving out the nations, afflicting the peoples, then planting the Israelites and setting them free in the conquered land of promise. But read carefully, you'll notice God's people are not at all passive in this war. 
They have real Canaanite blood on their swords and hands and feet. The psalmist is correctly interpreting what is recorded in the Old Testament historical narratives in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel and Kings. God really did lead and win the battles for Israel. But Israel fought hard and valiantly to secure victory. Those battles were not just in the days of old either. We have in Psalm 44, authored by the sons of Korah, they were writing in an era when Israel, as a geopolitical theocratic kingdom, was still in the land, and the battles were ongoing with the remaining pagan combatants. Thus, the psalm can put verses 3 through 5 together, which identify Israel's soldiers still engaging in warfare and still fighting to save his people. Listen again. For not by their own sword did they win the battle, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. That's verse 3, giving the credit to God. Verse 4. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. It's been said that war is hell. But you won't find that sentiment here. The psalmist actually encourages Israel to glory in victorious war and to boast in their God for battles fought and won, even in living memory. So understand the retelling of war stories in verse 1. It's kind of like the old patriarch in your family entertaining everyone around the sofa with tales from long ago. First from maybe the American Revolutionary and the Civil Wars, but then interspersed with stories of his own exploits in World War II. That's a little bit what's happening here in Psalm 44. Now, maybe such a thought gives you a warm, nostalgic feeling, but if you don't share the background assumption that the victors who wrote the history are the righteous ones and the losers are the wicked ones, then Psalm 44, we have to see, starts off with a bang. So much of an explosion that the Bible's view of the Canaanite conquest is now in our day one of our culture's primary objections to the morality of the biblical God, who tend to judge him as something like a moral monster. This thinking goes, isn't this an unprovoked military invasion followed by a mass genocide and justified with your scriptural imprimatur? Do you see it? It's an explosive accusation. And I'll try to explain a bit of the Bible's answer to that objection in a moment. But let's keep on working ourselves through the Psalms. We're in verses 9 through 16 now. At this point, in a standard lament psalm, we should expect the lament section, that is the sad section, the, the section that explains the problem at hand. Here the problem is closely related to the subject that we've just reviewed, military conquest. Now it seems God has rejected them and left them in disgrace. So thoroughly that the tables have dramatically turned in battle with Israel's enemies. That's verse 9. And not only is the disgrace really, really bad, but the complaint that God has rejected them is even worse. Israel is in full retreat, and the haters are in full plundering mode. Verse 10. God's people feel like they've been carted off to the slaughterhouse to be formed into ground beef 
and then shipped off to scattered meat markets. Really, that's verse 10, verse 11. It's a gruesome image of the international slave trade of that day. And God has sold his people off for pennies on the dollar, giving them away. Verse 12. All this adds up to abject disgrace. They would be better off dead. In the movie The Princess Bride, and I know most of you have probably seen it, so uh, spoiler alert here. At the end, the hero Wesley heaps insults on the villain Prince Humperdinck and declines to fight him to the death, but instead to the pain. You might remember the famous monologue. You might even be reciting the, the, the tape in your head right now. But I'll quote it for us because of what he says gives us a sense of what the psalmist feels God is saying to his very own people. To the pain means the first thing you will lose will be your feet below the ankles, then your hands at the wrists, next your nose. The next thing you will lose will be your left eye followed by your right. Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why, so that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, dear God, what is that thing, will echo in your perfect ears. That is what to the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. The point is that Prince Humberdink will, for the rest of his miserable life, become a laughingstock, a cautionary tale, an object of ridicule, a literal crying shame. That's verses 13 through 16. To the pain. That is what God's people feel like they are suffering since God has rejected them. And then, from the other side of the room, someone grunts, well, good, serves those religious bigots right. And everyone who wasn't rooting for Israel in the Psalms' opening verses cheers. But if you're a Christian who loves God and believes his word and is a member of his church, then you're probably a little surprised by the explosion of hatred and quietly wondering, why, God? It brings us to our second point, an undeserved tragedy. Why is where the psalm goes next. Like Job's three friends, you might expect a confession of sin to follow such a tale of woe. And that is usually, almost always, the appropriate response in this sinful world. But if you believe God's, believe uh, like Job's sincere counselors, a confession of sin is always and only the right response, then you're playing it safe and you're playing it wrong. Because in Psalm 44, a teaching song, remember, God's word is training his people how to lament when it's not your fault. When you don't deserve it. When the church has not forgotten God, but remembered him. When together we have been true to God's covenant, but disaster has still befallen us. Do you sense the rumblings in you, within yourself, down your bowels, of a coming explosion? Christians are not at all comfortable with pleading innocence. Here's how you've probably been trained to play it safe. I'm, I'm, I'm not sinless. So such talk makes me feel uncomfortable, icky, self-righteous, like a Pharisee. Let's think carefully here. 
If you play it safe with Psalm 44, then are you really saying this to God? I can't imagine this psalm ever being relevant to me or my church. I won't sing this song because I know myself better than you do, God, and I'm not willing to sing it as instruction into my heart today so I can use it tomorrow. And so, that's how we set ourselves up as wiser than the source of all wisdom. Our faulty assumption about our sins makes us think, I'm not justified to plead innocence. Like our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, doesn't actually justify us in his sight. In this case, an incomplete theology of sin might be your problem. Now listen, the psalmist is not claiming he and God's people are sinless. He's arguing they are innocent of the particular sins that activate the covenant curses they appear to be suffering. Now you say, isn't that splitting hairs a little bit? I mean, aren't all sins just as bad as the next, since any one sin deserves God's wrath and curse? I mean, that's in our confession, Shorter Catechism 84. And doesn't the Bible say, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it? That's in James chapter 2. And yes, it is true that breaking a single law makes you a lawbreaker in the same way that committing a single sin makes you a sinner. But it doesn't follow that all sins are just as bad as the next. For example, in the Old Testament, God prescribes punishments for covenant lawbreaking that vary according to the severity of the offense. Just read Exodus chapters 20, 21 and 22. Our catechisms say not all transgressions of the law are equally heinous in the sight of God because, quote, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That's the question before the one we just referred to, Shorter Catechism number 83, um, extremely elucidated in the larger catechism, uh, number 150 and 151, and then a number of other um, proof texts from the Bible that are included in that. You see, all sins are immoral, but only some are illegal. All require repentance, fewer require material restitution, and still fewer for retributive justice, and even fewer are punishable by death. Do you see what I'm saying? Justice says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A theology of different degrees of sin, according to the Bible and our Reformed doctrine, is consistent with the eternal punishment of all sins. You might ask, how is that the case? You haven't convinced me yet. Well, the answer is in the distinction between justification and sanctification. In other words, between positional and practical righteousness. Think of it this way. Not all Christians are practically holy to the same degree at any one point in time. Right now, every person who has been born again of the Holy Spirit, regenerated with the heart of Jesus, is more or less like Jesus. More or less. But nevertheless, still like Jesus. But every single one of those Jesus people is completely and totally justified in God's sight. Not just innocent, but also righteous in view of the covenant. 
because Christians possess a righteousness that is not our own. We have Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness, credited to our accounts. We wear Christ's perfection as a robe that covers our imperfection and covers it completely. And because you are positionally perfect only by faith in Christ, then you are justified to sing verses 17 and 18. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yes, we still commit sins. I think that much is obvious, and everybody would admit that. As a Christian, you will fight against temptation until the day you die. So get used to it. But that's referring to sanctification, which is your practical righteousness. Positionally, your righteousness is that you have died to sin and no longer live in it. As to your status, your standing, your position before God, you have been justified forever. Therefore, you are entirely justified to lament tragedy when it is undeserved and to passionately register your complaint before God, even while you continue to be a saint who struggles with indwelling sin. That's just one aspect of the scandalous gospel of Christ. And yes, it can be explosive, because it doesn't feel like you're justified to live in the freedom that is your privilege as one who is justified before God. But you are. Your justification actually justifies you. It's not a safe religious message. Now at this point, as we move on to verses 20 and 21, another objection arises. The first was, no way, I'm not justified. The second is, no way, you're not justified. Usually, this objection is aimed at an offensive collection of people as a group. It goes something like this. Christians are a bunch of horrible sinners. I'm sorry, horrible sinners. See exhibits A through Z. And those exhibits may include stuff from church history, like the Holy Land Crusades, the Spanish conquistadors in the New World, or American slavery. Or the examples might be more painfully personal, like a sexually abusive youth pastor or a hypocritical Christian father. When the objection is aimed at a group as a whole, we're talking about another aspect of the theology that undergirds justification. Let's call it collective justification because it applies to whole cultures, identity groups, and religions. Look at verses 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The psalmist is not just claiming Israel has been outwardly faithful in in its actions, but they have been inwardly loyal in their worship to their God. He's claiming their hearts are pure and their consciences are clear. In other words, they are innocent inwardly and outwardly. And God knows they are telling the truth because he discerns the secrets of the human heart. If the church is loyal to God, even though she has many sins, then she is justified 
and therefore so is her covenant complaint. Sometimes Christians get confused about what being faithful to God's covenant requires. Remember, covenant faithfulness is not about sinlessness, but about loyal devotion to God alone. If you forsake all other gods and keep worshiping and following the Lord Jesus despite your many sins and failings, then God considers you a covenant keeper. That is why King David could repent of his adultery and murder. And in the end, the Bible still judged his heart was wholly true to the Lord God and that he wholly followed the Lord as contrasted with his son Solomon who turned away to other gods. You can find that exact language in 1 Kings 11, verses 4 through 6. Your justification through faith alone is based on your confession of faith followed from a believing heart because God is ultimately after your heart. But to the objector, who is the enemy of God and the enemy of his people, heart motives don't matter one bit in the offending group because no matter what that group says or does, they can never be justified. Why is that, you ask? Because collective justification is all about treating groups as either approved or condemned. Now, let me illustrate. This is a, an unfamiliar concept to many of us. Our country is currently seeking or seeing a collective justification in action all over the place. At the calling out of gross double standards, exercises in whataboutism, you know what I'm talking about, whataboutism, it's like, look at how terrible your group acts. And then the response is, well, what about this in your group? Whataboutism. And the spreading cancer of cancel culture. All of these are manifestations of collective justification. Have you ever wondered why two groups of people can be guilty of the same offense, but the approved group gets a pass, and the condemned group gets mob-shamed and socially ruined? The approved group is justified by its God, so their own sins are atoned for. If anything, if they've got any faults, they just need to work on their sanctification so it's a little bit more refined. Why don't the sins committed by those in the approved group ruin them? Because they are justified as a group. That's collective justification. However, the condemned group is shamed and socially ruined for the same kinds of sins. Why? Because collective justification says if you're not accepted and approved, then you are condemned as a member of the unjustified offensive group. No matter how much its member of a condemned group confesses and repents, that person cannot ever atone for their sin because they are not justified by the God of the approved group. Now, why am I explaining all this? I hope you're following me. The Bible's theology behind collective justification explains why one group of sinners, us, can call on God to judge another group of sinners, them, because God is the one who truly justifies, which is another way of saying God is the righteous judge. His judgment is the only judgment that ultimately stands. All other judgments are incoherent, chaotic, and manifestly unjust because they are rendered by an unrighteous and false God 
a false god who is opposed to God's righteous standard of justice. Do you understand how explosive this is? It means that faithful Israel was justified in calling on the Lord, their God, to destroy the Canaanite armies that were ravaging them. Because God, who is perfectly just and holy, determined the Canaanites deserved to be judged for their sustained and accumulated wickedness. It didn't matter if the Canaanites were in the land first. All the earth belongs to God, and he grants and withholds access to lands as he pleases. Since his will is always perfectly righteous and just, he is the justifier. And whatever group receives his justification is justified in his sight. Collective justification is explosive. Do you see what this means for us? When we as a church, with all our many sins and shortcomings, and there are many, remain loyal to Jesus by not turning aside to any other God, remember, he knows the secret loyalties of our heart, we can, with a clear conscience, cry out in communal lamentation for God to win our spiritual battles against our enemies. This is not crass tribalism or some form of Christian nationalism, but it's a working out of our collective justification as a community of sinners saved by the God who justifies us through faith in Jesus Christ, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, and God of gods. Collective justification also means for us that internally, emotionally, you have been set free to live as one justified by God. In other words, the application of collective justification is not merely a new way of thinking. It's a totally new way of living free and victorious in life's spiritual battles. For example, when someone who represents an approved group that stands against the church pours contempt and shame on you, you can say to yourself, so what? I'm justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I care that I'm not justified by a puny, fickle, unjust God, that false God of your system? I don't have to repent of those pseudo-sins that you say I'm guilty of and abase myself before your wrathful, unforgiving, false God. I'm not subject to your God. My God, Yahweh, the Lord, is true. And I'll take his justification over yours any day of the week because my God won't crush me by setting the bar impossibly high so I, can have constant, I have to constantly prove my worthiness, and my God won't forever disappoint me because he loves me and forgives me and saves me according to his unchanging will forever. And like your so-called God who demands for, to gain approval or constantly changing, not like that. And by the way, you can say to your to your, um, to your opponent, if you will. My God will save you too from the cruel, fickle God that you're serving. Come and follow the Lord Jesus with me. It is for freedom that Christ sets us free. Don't be chained anymore to a yoke of slavery. I hope you see how collective justification is on the front line of spiritual warfare. It's explosive. Which brings us to the last few verses of Psalm 44 and our third point, a redeemed tragedy. 
How can our tragedies as a church be redeemed? That's, in the end, the question, right? For those who belong to God, the church of Jesus Christ, we have every right to sing lamentation and call on the Lord to save us on the basis of his chesed, which is the last word in this psalm. And because that's the last word, it never stops ringing in the church's ears. That's why it's last. Chesed is God's steadfast love, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. You don't have to be sinless to plead with God to wake up and deliver you. You just have to be counted among the justified, living a life of covenant loyalty to Jesus, confessing and repenting of your sins, receiving his grace through forgiveness, and walking imperfectly but wholeheartedly with him alone. Besides, calling on God to redeem us from our tragedies is not about pleading our own covenant obedience. It's about appealing to his love for us as his justified people, justified in Christ, the one who loves us for his own sake. While God indefinitely delays redeeming us from afflictions and oppression, because as you can see in Psalm 44, they're still waiting for God to wake up. Whatever these affliction and oppression forms might take, we will surely feel like God is asleep, like he's rejected us forever, verse 23, like he is hiding from us, verse 24, like our souls are lying helpless face down in the dust, verse 25. Still, if you're a Christian, take heart and keep on singing this communal lamentation because God promises to eventually give the cure to his justified people, which is deliverance, redemption, salvation, approval, justification, chesed, covenant love. What if we keep on waiting now, keep on lamenting, and we start to die off one by one, or less likely, maybe altogether? Then what? Was it all for nothing? Was our faith in vain? Do we have no resurrection hope of eternal life? Are we of all pity people the most to be pitied? Did we live a big lie believing we were justified by God but in the condemned group all along? Now we're ready to handle the final explosive truth of this psalm. If we were to play it safe, we might say, <laughs> don't worry. God will come through sooner than you think. His blessings are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But this psalm won't let us off easy like that. The most important words in Psalm 44 are for your sake, in verse 22. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul quotes the entire verse as proof that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, even if we are killed all day long, slaughtered like sheep, sold as slaves, scattered as a church family, afflicted and oppressed by enemies on all sides, by faith we will keep on singing laments as a spiritual discipline. And in that communal lament, we will rejoice that it was for his sake, for the sake of Christ who suffered and died to save us, for the sake of bearing witness to the gospel, for the sake of waiting until God gains all the glory. Because when he finally wakes up to arise, we also shall arise. And on that day, our lamentation will turn to praise. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lamentation to praise, Lord. That is what we're counting on. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're singing about. And it's all about you, God, for your sake. Help us, Lord, to be shaped and changed and set free by the way you justify us that we might call upon you to save us in every way. We pray to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of gods, Jesus Christ. Amen.